Coming up next, another episode on poetry, what the people have been asking for. What they want. Welcome to the Booking. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host, joined by Brandon Chastain, the scholar who's a baller of reading. Hey! Ghost Brandon right there. Ooh. And I believe that they told me last episode that Brandon wasn't on, that I should be referred to as the Lord of Validation. The Lord of Validation? Yes. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I was just validating everybody left and right, oh. making them feel good. I should listen to that episode. We had Dubstep Danny on and talk, talk about the Witness for the Prosecution movie. Dropped yesterday, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. As I'll listen recording. to it. And we talked about, uh, we, we argued about old Agatha Christie a little bit more. Yeah. And of course, I was accommodating to her viewpoint. I accepted that Agatha Christie was great, and I was the Lord of Validation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you really? No. Oh. But <laughs> so was this a sarcastic title then? Maybe they think it's sarcastic, but I felt like I was pretty validating. Yeah. If you listen to the episode, you'll see that I think I get a bum rap, Brandon. Yeah. As, an, as a Christie hater, I think it's okay for people to like Agatha Christie. Even though she's horrible. Even though she's horrible. And and the people that like her are horrible. Yeah. You know, I think... But you get a bad rap for thinking those things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get a bum rap for... I can see see your point of view, Nathan. (laughs) It's an accurate bum rap. (laughs) No, no, no. Listen, this has been a weird... This is the fifth episode now where the gang's not all together. Jake's in a meeting right now. He is. He's important. We should say, we do not plan to make this a thing, you know? No, we don't. You keep saying that, though. I know I keep saying that. I mean, probably people are wondering, like, what's going on? The gang's breaking up. Mommy and daddy still love you. Yeah, mommy and daddy still love you very much. (laughs) That's the most important thing to understand. (laughs) No, mommy and daddy still love each other very much. Daddy just has a meeting and mommy is getting drunk (laughs) behind the tool shed. (laughs) (laughs) Next episode will be the beginning of a long series of episodes where we will... Not be Jakeless. Not be Jakeless. Not be Brandonless. Not be Nathanless. Not be everyone but Nathanless. That was kind of weird. We will just be together, all three of us. Brandon. Yeah. The people asked for it. They did another poetry episode. This will be three. Yeah, the third one. That one that ah, let's face it, it was really an episode, but it was the sound quality maybe wasn't the best, so I released it as a bonus episode. People liked it. Yeah, they did. The incandescent marathon. She she. Drilled, drilled you on some questions. She did. Made My you... wife was on there. Your wife was on there too. The uh, the lovely Anna and yes. the incandescent Meredith both appeared. Happy we were to have them. Yes. Two fine ladies. Mm-hmm. But what we thought we'd do today is talk more about poetry. Yes. And what we wanted to do, because we got, I don't want to say we got technical, but we talked a lot of theory and we talked some craft and everything last time and we wanted to give some which, examples. Which was good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And we thoroughly apologized, I think, for our previous crazy stance that only men like poetry. Yes. But here's here's what's going to happen today, folks. We have three poems picked out, and we are going to talk through these poems. And what kind of things are we going to be looking for, Brandon? We're going to look for rhyme and rhythm and meter. We're also going to look for how the poetry, the poet actually crafts the image that he's dealing with, the words, the placement of words. 
just how difficult it is to actually write a poem. Yes, I think if we give you some concrete examples, it'll be maybe a way to breathe a little life into, not not that we thought the other episode was boring or anything, but it'll be, just be a concrete way of talking about some of these principles. Yeah. Well, should we start with Yeats? Yeah, absolutely. Yeats, so the, one of my favorite Yeats poems is his poem, Adam's Curse, where he's, it's these people hit, sitting, uh, sitting on a hill at a summer's end. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talk to poetry. Mm-hmm. And then Yeats says, a line may take us hours, perhaps. And yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitchings and unstitchings have been not. And so I think that's a beautiful statement of what the craft of poetry is and how difficult it is. A lot of people like Tennyson, they like Kipling, those sorts of guys. Yeah. And yet those sort of poems sound tripping and skipping, and you can hear the rhythm really easily in those because... They kind of are just a moment's thought. Right. It's the first thing that Tennyson thought to put to paper. He was he was a craftsman to an extent, but he also, he was prolific. He was like the Dickens of poetry. And though I love Dickens, I don't think that Dickens was the prose, a prose genius. Right. Or at least he wasn't meticulous about his prose. Maybe we should put it that way. Right. I think that line helps you realize what goes into writing a great poem is, it is the right word at the right place, the right word at the right time. I think they're, which poet is it that said that? I think there actually is a poet that said, good poetry is the right word in the right place. I think there is too, but I don't know who it is off the top Um, of my head. I mean, you have your other famous expressions of what a poem is. For Williams Wordsworth, it was a spontaneous expression of emotion, contemplated in uh, tranquility, right? Mm, Yeah, great. And so, which, I mean, there's an element of truth to it, that that poems are about emotion and feeling, Mm. and they marry that, the feeling we have about the world with the imagery about the world. Right. And so there's that balance that has to happen in a poem, but then that has to be evoked through words. And so there's the right word, and then there can be the wrong word. Right. And then you have to balance that with the image you're trying to build, but also then with the sound of the poem as well. And so a whole line can just shift and change because you just decided to change one word. Yes. And so it can be a really difficult craft. If anybody out there has ever tried to write poetry, it's pretty hard to write a good poem. Yeah, it's a precision craft. It's not like a novel. A novel can excusably have an extra word or an extra syllable yeah a short story the same yeah because with a poet they're thinking about the sound of a word and the sound of a word can balance with the other words that happen later on in the poem Mm -hmm. one word can change the other words that should appear in that line just because of the consonants and the balance of consonants within the line i mean it's a very musical way of looking at language yeah Uh, yates has another essay where he talks it's actually his essay on the psalter He's talking about some weird psalter that was being written. And he says that for him, he can never write lyrics because his poetry kind of is like this three-dimensional thing where it has its own sort of music. And that's the secret of poetry is that good poetry always kind of has a music to it. Yes. And you get an ear for it as you read more of it. But it's the way that vowels and consonants balance off of one another, the way that you have internal rhymes and the way that you have structure with like chiasms and things that are occurring within the poem. And you can look for these things and good poets are going to have an ear for it and build Mm -hmm. it into their poem. It's just natural. It comes to them. And so all that to say, if you then have a line that you've used in a poem and then you have like three other lines to follow that in good poetry, those three other lines are going to depend on the words in that first line. Right. So you change one word and suddenly everything is up for grabs. Yes. You have to start changing other words because maybe that was a B instead, but now it's a K. But you used a lot of B sounds down here or P sounds to kind of have that same quality. So now those have to change to, to just so the sound it goes back to how it should be. It's like a ball of yarn. You can start pulling yeah. on it and it can completely fall apart on you. Yep. 
even lose a poem because you realize a word's not working here and then suddenly the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. Yeah, and I know that with prose stylists, this can happen too, but- Absolutely. With poetry, the metrics that, that are at stake and if you're trying to write a sonnet, for example, the- just the tradition of a sonnet, the iams that you have to use, the rhythms and rhymes that you have to use can be very difficult. Right. Very tricky. And so, anyways, that's kind of what we want to show. Yeah, absolutely. By looking at some poems. Best way to do it is to do it. So, so let's read one. Absolutely. Now, Brandon, uh, how, uh, let me ask you this though, so that I don't mess it up and embarrass myself. How do you read a poem? This how is do something you... I think we didn't talk about last time. Yeah. The way that poetry is read when it's read poorly. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the way that most people will read it. And people actually argue about this and fight about this. I actually read recently a pretty respected poet who says, no, you're supposed to read the stops at the end of the lines. That's why they're there, right? And so the thing that you don't do is you don't give overemphasis to the meter. Mm -hmm. So you don't say like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more, you know. That's how a bad poetry reader, a high school kid just trying it out. Or let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. (laughs) So, and what I'm doing there is I'm overemphasizing the rhythm and I'm also stopping hard at the end of each line. Yes. Poems have natural breaks built into lines, like lines can be hard stopped when they have punctuation at the end. That's what it's called a hard stopped or end stopped line. Right. If it f- carries over to the next line, that's called enjambment. And that's very intentional. And poets will use that to give a more, na- give naturalness to their poem. Right. And so when you come to an enjambed line, you can take a short little breath if you want to show, like give a little wink to the fact that there's the end of a line. Right. But you're supposed to read through the enjambment and you're supposed to, as much as possible, not em- overemphasize the rhythm because it'll come through as you read. Yeah. So you don't want to overstress the rhymes. You don't want to overstress. In fact, good poets use enjambment and they use meter and stuff like that to help even to hide the rhymes. Mm -hmm. So like if you read a sonnet by Shakespeare, it's not overly obvious where the rhymes are when you read it. And that's on purpose. They're there because they help give a repetition and structure, but it's all, it's implied. It's like a good meal. Yeah. The spices are implied. Right. So I'm going to read The Wild Swans at Cool. By William Butler Yeats. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Nope, that's not how you do it, folks. Don't do that. That's the wrong way. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all sudden mount, and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon these brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell-beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wonder where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away? So we want, what do we want to talk about here? The well, way he goes about building this poem? What, what kind of a poem is this? Is this a particular form? Not really. This is kind of a unique form here. How do, how do you tell if you're just looking at a poem? I guess you just... 
You know the forms. I mean, you and, would know the forms. You would have studied like what it was a ballad, what's a sonnet, what's right. a villanelle, what's a sestina, what are these other forms? And, and so, I mean, it has a structure to it. What's the structure? So the structure, if you look at dry and sky, definitely are rhyming, right? And so one way you can go and start thinking, is there a structure to something is find the rhymes and then go to the next stanza and see, are those rhymes still there? Mm-hmm. So with a poem, it's broken into stanzas. And so this one is built of five stanzas. Mm-hmm. And each stanza is six lines. It's also known as a sestet. And so with the six lines, we would go to dry and sky. That's a, that's line two and four. There aren't any other obvious beauty, perhaps, might be an off rhyme with dry. But you can go ahead and discount that by looking at the next stanza and seeing that me and count do not rhyme. Right. Right. So beauty is not intended to rhyme with dry. Me, our count, though, does rhyme with mount. So two and four definitely are rhyming lines. Right. Then here you can see something interesting where w- rings and wings rhyme. Mm-hmm. And so if you go back to the first line, obviously, then stones and swans, it's meant to be a slant rhyme. It's a slant rhyme. Yeah. Because if you look at the other stanzas, he does a rhyme of five and six. So a, a lot of students will make mistakes in trying to figure out rhyme scheme and stuff like that, just the basic bones of a poem, because they won't look and compare it to the following stanzas. Because you can be thrown off by slant rhyme or thrown off by something that looks like it may be supposed to be a rhyme, such as beauty and dry. But obviously the rhyming lines in this poem are two, four, five, and six. Mm-hmm. So if you were to write it out, it would be A, B, C, B, D, D. Mm. It would be the rhyme scheme here. And the other thing you want to do is see, is there any relation between the rhymes in the first stanza and in the second stanza? Because you want to know, I was like, is this a what you might call like an interwoven pattern? Right. Are they building off of each other? And I don't necessarily see that there is. But they all follow this same pattern. You have sore and shore, head and tread, cold, old, will and still, um, beautiful pool. Again, that's kind of a slant rhyme and day and away. So the first, the trees are in their autumn beauty. So that's the trees are in their autumn beauty. Kind of ends with a little amphibrock there, but mm-hmm. it's kind of iambic in its meter. The tree, The yeah. woodland paths are dry under the October twilight. And that's a little more complicated. Right. But still, it's kind of dealing with iams. Pretty simple meter going mm-hmm. on here. He's playing around with it some. Like mirrors is not... Mirrors, if you're going to force it to be an iam. It's sure. a troche there. Mirrors, a still sky. So some complicated things going on with his rhythm. He's a modernist. Right. Early modernist, but still. So, what kind of rule would he be holding himself to to make this poem be a poem when he when he sits down to write it? If he can kind of, it's going to be primarily iams, mm-hmm. and he's going to let that stretch and sort of be flexible when he needs it to be for the not just for the meaning, but for also for the sound. Um, it gives some variety to it. When does stretch and be flexible become? Not a poem. In other words, we've spent so much time talking about rules and rhythm and precision and craft, and now we're looking at a poem where Mr. Yates well, just a, kind of does what he wants, or so a student might. I'm, I'm being the devil, you understand. I, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, um, well, for one, you can read it and you can tell that there's some, there's intentionality behind the way he's doing this. Yes. So the trees are in their autumn beauty. You can hear the iams. Mm-hmm. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. What I like about that is under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Both under and mirrors kind of have a falling trochaic aspect yes. to it. And so the mirror actually mirrors the under sound that was right in before it. Mm-hmm. And I got to think that he was thinking along those same lines. 
you like sometimes words, it's nice for them to do what they say. Right. So mirror, you should have it mirror kind of the sound that is around it. Yeah. So it's fun to analyze poetry like this because you kind of pick up on these things as you look at it. Right. And then upon the brimming water among the stones, so he breaks the iams there a bit, are nine and fifty swans. And there, that's pretty much perfect iams right there. Right. And so he stays, it's like Bach. He stays within the rules, but then breaks them and bends them when he needs to, either for the sense and sound of the poem or just to add some variety. It's like eating a cayenne pepper or something. <laughs> it gives some spice to the sound, breaks it up, mm-hmm. makes it more interesting. Like a great blues guitarist. He's got about three chords to work with, but he can do any number of infinite little variations within the basic formula. Yep. All right. And so those are the bones. That's what's going on with the music. Mm-hmm. But there are other, still other kind of interesting things that are happening here. Like one thing that's... So have you ever heard of um, the Bars method of analysis? The Bars method of analysis. I've heard that phrase. I don't know that Binaries, anomalies, repetitions, and strands. Ah, interesting. These are very, this is a very useful way to teach students how to start analyzing texts in general. Mm-hmm. With poems, it also works. Like binaries are like what things are opposed to one another. Right. So here, obviously, youthfulness and old age. Right. Nature and death. Right, because the swans kind of represent this timeless here, unwearied still, lover by lover, right? Right. Unwearied still. So this is these swans, these white these white symbols of something mm-hmm. that's happening that he isn't. Right. Because he knows that in the future, they're going to be gone. They're going right. to leave them, right? And so this helps students begin to look at the images that are happening here. So the central image that's going on is you have a guy, he sees the trees are in their autumn beauty. Mm. Well, already the poem is talking about autumn. Right. So that gives a certain quality to the poem immediately, right? Yeah. This is about fall. And we associate fall not with life, but with death, death, old age. And so it's like stopping uh, the, the snowy woods by frost, you know, stopping the woods on a snowy evening. Is that what it is? Uh, or stopping by the woods. Stopping by the woods, yes, sir. On a snowy evening. Yeah. Same thing, winter there. And it's a poem about death, really, is what that poem's about. Mm-hmm. And so the woodland paths are dry under the October twilight, and so even the time of day still mimics this feeling of you're at the close of something. Yes. Mirrors a still sky upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. And so it's a very clear image, but also in the way that he set the time of day, this is about autumn and it's about these swans. But yes. it's also about the person, the persona of the poem seeing these swans. He says, the 19th autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. Hmm. So already time has passed, right? I saw before I had well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All right, so now you have this element of he has a feeling about these swans. And so why does he have this feeling? Right. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wonder where they will, attend upon them still. So the poet obviously sees these swans and he he has changed. Yeah. He's become weary. It's been 19 years since he first saw them. And he wishes he couldn't have to change. And it makes him sad. Yeah. And then the last stanza just kind of, there's also an element of you know, the twilight. This is like the time of the fairies. And Yeats was a mystic. Yeah. And so he was a weird guy, but he wished that um, he wouldn't have to grow old. He wished that he could find the land of the fairies. A lot of his early poems were about this, him trying to find like the stolen child, stuff like that. Right. Song of Wandering Angus. <laughs> but now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool? Delight men's eyes when I awake some day, 
to find they have flown away. And so then if you start looking at the image and you start realizing, well, there's all sorts of things that these swans could symbolize and be a metaphor for his ability to write poetry, his love of beauty, his desire, his vitality, his youth. But that's kind of what the binary helps you realize is the swans are supposed to be opposed to something. Right. And it's him. It's whatever he's feeling about himself, Mm -hmm. whether it's good or bad, whether it's a narcissistic poem or what. Right. But that's, and then the other thing that you want to do is then look for like similarities, things that are repeated. Anomalies are things that stand out, things that are weird. But that actually, this the repetitions in this poem are interesting because you realize like twilight gets echoed in the third stanza where it becomes the rhyming word, hearing at twilight, right? Mirror is a still sky. Look at the end of line, stanza four. Passion or conquest, wonder where they will, attend upon them still, but now they drift on the still water. And so he has this, he works in these words that he had used in the first stanza. He uh, builds them and stitches them throughout the poem, mm-hmm. which also helps give a rhythm and a meter to it, mm-hmm. um, tightens it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so swans are an important imagery for Yeats. Uh, I'm trying to find the, uh, here it is, because I think he took on the form of a swan. Yeats took on the form of a swan? Two swans came flying up to him, linked by a gold chain each to each, and with low murmuring laughing speech lighted on the windy grass, they knew him. So there's a story about Biley and Island that he wrote when he was younger. Mm-hmm. It's a... And I, I don't know if I'm saying their names right, but they, it was this Irish story about these two lovers who the god of love became so jealous of or didn't, like their love was so wonderful that he couldn't let them stay mortal. He had to kill them. Right, yeah. Basically. And so when happens. they died, they took on the form of swans. Mm-hmm. They were linked by a gold chain. And then they get to go into the immortal places and swim in the waters of the fairylands. Mm-hmm. That's that story. So I think there's an echo of that here. Mm-hmm. So, lover by lover, there to him the swans represent this mysterious, eternal beauty, and for him that's love, that's poetry, all these things. I think that's what it's kind of getting at here. Is these poem these swans are supposed to? Why he says lover by lover is it gives these swans some metaphorical depth, right? That you know weren't there before. It adds a layer to it. I mean, he chose those words very carefully, which is what you're getting at, right? Right, absolutely. And so he meant it. For a reason, he wants to, it changes the quality of the poem. Right. He could have said, I mean, what's the line? Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Yeah. I mean, he could have just said like, unwearied still, they float and move or something, right? (laughs) He could have said something terrible. (laughs) Yeah. But, and it would have changed, it changes it though. Right. It's to say lover by lover or unwearied still, companion by companion, Mm -hmm. right? That changes it. Friend by friend. So he chose lover by lover because it, I mean, I think, I kind of would assume because of his love of that old story, it's kind of an echo of that for him. Yeah, absolutely. But even without the old, even if you don't know that, yeah, it gives you that feeling in your bones of, oh, the lovers are flying away. Yeah. It makes it all that much more deathly and that much more my youth is deserting me and lover lo- loving and lovers are the province of the young, the young. and yeah. we're in this twilight autumn so what 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 should be floating flying away on companionable streams going somewhere else you know uh, making a vision for someone else to see and not for me but the lovers yeah it's sad poor guy poor guy yeah their hearts have not grown old who has a younger heart than a lover. And this is the point in Yates' career though where he was also a little bit self-aware about things. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a quality as well. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, 
So there's a little bit of self-awareness that he's reading into this as well. Yes. And so this is our, he feels old. Yes. Like everybody feels old. And so he's seeing these things and reading them into this situation. And that's what poetry is. Yes. It's using these images. It's using nature and the things around us to help evoke feeling. Right. And so he's doing it through these swans. He's not saying that these swans represent some eternal lover by lover. Yeah, it's not like some terrible Edgar yeah. Allan Poe poem or something where the swan is supposed to literally be... The symbol of love. The symbol of love. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's not, that's not what's happening here. Just some dork looking at yeah. some swans and feeling sad. That's basically the, yeah. the narrative of the poem, if you will. Yeah, and so he's giving it meaning that's not there. Right. But through it, I mean, it's a helpful way of thinking about death and change, right? And so there's a strange mystery and otherness to nature. Mm-hmm. It's completely apart from us. And it does seem to be unchanging to an extent. And yet here we are. We grow old and we die and we change. And we do. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, funny thing about that, uh, me and the incandescent Meredith, our love was so strong, we actually made an Irish fairy very angry and we're due to be turned into swans and destroyed. Wow. Olangus is going to get you. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Should we move on to the next poem or is there anything else we want to say about the wild swans at cool? I don't think there's any more to say. I mean, there's quite, I mean, I'm sure there's oh, quite sure. a bit more to say. <laughs> no, we've actually said everything that's yeah. possible to be said about this poem. I don't know. I mean, I do you feel like we've gotten enough out of it? For the sake of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I like bell beat, the bell beat of their wings. What does that mean? Is that a phrase or is that a phrase that he invented? The bell beat. I think it might be just something he invented there. Does that mean that their wings ring? Yeah. Kind of has a ringing quality. Um, one thing to note is I have looked upon those brilliant creatures. There's a falling quality to the end of each line. Right. That I think is nice. The longer lines, all's changed since I hearing at twilight. It's a feminine ending to each of the lines. Feminine mm-hmm. is where the stress is before the... They end on an unstressed word, right. an unstressed um, syllable. And so that's interesting because it sort of gives each line a weakness. Yeah. Because they're called feminine because they sound weak, right? And so when you read it, the trees are in their autumn beauty. Right. Right. And the trees are in their autumn... I don't know what you, what cheap word you could put there. The trees are in their autumn... The trees are in their autumn time. Yeah, there you go. It's a stupid line, but but it's that's a masculine ending. Yes, but the trees are in their autumn beauty. Gives it a softness that I think fits the sort of softness of what he's getting at here. This guy who's sad and thinking about his death, right? And so there's a way that even the lines and the way that he's structured the fact that the you have a traditional four. It's kind of a traditional ballad until the ending. Upon the brimming water, among the stones, are nine and swift fifty swans. Within each stanza, I think those last two lines generally bring some sort of, what, poignant? Uh, they kind of highlight something. Right. Right. Bring, they bring a focus to the stanza. Right. So he's talking about, he's in the woods, it's twilight, and then he talks about the swans in those last two lines. That's because they kind of stand out there. They rhyme together when the other four lines haven't been rhyming. And so they're tighter. And he does use that to help kind of bring a significance to the line mm-hmm. or to the stanza. So if you read it, the trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a a still sky. So you have the rhyme that was kind of in there. You can kind of hear it. But in the last two lines, upon the brimming water among the stones are nine of 50 swans. It's a much more practical ending. It kind of brings into focus some new aspect. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the turn of a sonnet. Yeah. It's the thought clicking into place. It's like you're fiddling with a latch and then suddenly it goes into place and the thought is complete. Yeah, and the rhyme helps that. Yes, yes. So, anyways. Well, do you recommend The Wild Swans at Cool? Yeah, I recommend Yates. All right, yeah. Oh, well. Do you really? Not all Yates. Do you really? 
what maybe Brandon's the beast that slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's take a little donor shout-out break. Okay. Why don't you guys just give me some music, and I'll read the donor shout-outs real quick. Just some music? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's right. Pray continue. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, the artful Anthony Dodger, little Anthony's cigar store available for all your cigar needs, the immortal Chelsea E, Jimmy Beam, and little Annie Oakley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds, the inscrutable Jenny Z, the Keith Master, David's Mighty Men Trucking, John and Jill, and little baby Max. I can hit that now. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. So very My cold. beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Console Prime Blue. What? Console Prime Blue. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Yore. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Yeah. Nathan, not me. The incandescent Meredith. Incandescent Meredith. Maya! Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Danny, the Dude. Did all these get decided last episode? DJ, Yes, they did. Sorry, you missed it. I decided that the really dumb ones, not, not the dumb people, but so there's certain people that had less creative names. Yeah. Like E-M-I-L-Y Emily became Galactic Princess Emily because nice. she deserved better. Yeah. And Judo Judith, and, you know, that was always, I always felt bad for them. So they became Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Wow. And of course, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Dana Tiberius. Wicca, yeah, but dun, 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 Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds, Professor, Oh, and you should welcome Console. I don't think you were here for Console. Brandon, no. they want to hear probably a welcome from Brandon. Hey, who is it? Console. Console. <laughs> console Prime Blue. Console, prime, console prime Blue. Yep. Hey, good to have you, Console. Good to have you, Console. Hope you're enjoying our, yeah. our poetry episodes. Narnia next you the week. Consulate for, are you like a Consulate? Is it C-O-N-S-U-L? C-O-N-S-O-L-E, I believe. Don't have it right in front of me. Oh, Console. Console, yeah. Console. Console. One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look... My last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Yes. What? <laughs> write it. <laughs> I thought that's how it should be read. I stand by that reading. Okay. <laughs> Folks, if you look at this, it's in italics with an exclamation point. <laughs> I assume that... Except, I mean, that last stanza, it's <laughs> so sad. I know, but... <laughs> All right, fine. Here we go. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture, I lo- a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, ride it, like disaster. <laughs>
that is that better that's so much better Nate. <laughs> no 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 i'll try it again it's evident i'll let's see if we'll see how brandon likes if i can do one that brandon likes it's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master though it may look like write it like disaster <laughs> i think that's the closest you've done <laughs> I think that might have just been shoving my reading in my face. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I can't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. (laughs) All right, let's do the next poem. That's how you you read poetry. Oh yeah, that's how you do it right there. Uh, okay, fine. You read it. Let's hear how Brandon would read that. Oh, no, that's good, Nathan. That's great. <laughs> I think the people. I, I, I don't want theatrics here. <laughs> write it. <laughs> write it. Write it. That's how I. Hashtag. Yeah. Though it may look like write it <laughs> like disaster. <laughs> okay. That's how you read it. <laughs> you know, in the moment that actually did, I, I my my original reading sounded pretty good to me. I have to say. I think uh, it was fine. No, I don't think you think it's, it was fine, but I I liked it. Um, well, you can go back and listen and see if you agree. <laughs> I don't know that I'll agree. <laughs> it's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like right at like disaster. <laughs> let's just move on. <laughs> let's just talk about the poem. Okay, let's, <laughs> <laughs> I think people get the point. <laughs> it's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like right at like disaster. No. Yeah, I, I can't read this line in a way that it's makes good. Brandon happy. No, I think that was good. I think okay. that was fun. Okay, okay. I think the point there is that she's stressing she has to do it. She has to write it, right? Because she doesn't want to. Right. That's the, so. Right. Though it may look like, write it like disaster. It may look like, write it. Yeah. One thing that's good about Elizabeth Bishop is that she is a modernist, but mm. I think she helps show because a lot of bad poets today, and there's, there's a lot of bad poetry that people traipse about and say oh look this is good poetry it's like (laughs) you have two options it seems on the one end you have all these i don't even know what category to put them in i'm i always are making these people mad (laughs) but they're all like oh kipling or tennyson or wordsworth they're the greatest oh no okay people are gonna think we're really snobby but here's the thing we're correct (laughs) yeah i mean and it's because they there's no maturity to what they're doing there's no mature there's what do I mean by maturity? Well, I mean, with children's poetry, like a good children's poet, the rhyme and the rhythms are going to be much more, they're going to be blatant. They're going to mm-hmm. be out there in the open for you to see. Right. Because that's part of the fun of a children's poem is it's teaching children the fun, how fun poetry can be with the sounds and the words mm-hmm. and how goofy words can be in there. And so Shel Silverstein, to an extent, really is okay at it. Those may even be shots fired. <laughs> but the the really good ones are like A.A. A. Milne. It's really generous of you. Shell Silverstein is to an extent. Yeah. Okay, okay, at it. No, I'm, I'm with you 100%, though. I, I mean, I've read some of his stuff, and it's like just, some of it's just silly. Like, he doesn't give children the dignity of thinking that they need a poem that's about something that's mildly interesting and not just goofy. Yeah, I agree. Sorry, guys. I agree. And the people that are good at that are like A.A. Milne. Lear was really good at that. Edward mm-hmm. Lear. Edward, oh, yeah, he was great. So, and, but they're going to be much more sing songy with their poems, and that's fine because those are for children. But even something that's ostensibly nonsense, like a Lewis Carroll poem, like The Walrus and the Carpenter, is about something. It captures a certain yeah. pathos of existence, if that's not too snobby for me to say. The Walrus and the Carpenter take, take advantage. There's politics in there. There's, there's lots of stuff in there, even though it's, 
But what I mean by the rhythm being much more is so the walrus and the carpenter were walking hand in hand. Right. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only swept away, they said it would be grand. But it's because that's the way the poem asks you to read it. It wants to be more musical and tripping and moving you forward yes. because it's supposed to be fun for children. And actually, it's very difficult to write good poetry like that and to make it actually work. It is then difficult to write something like Kipling or Tennyson and make it work as well. But the problem is, is there, if, if all they're ever doing is like, it's always just iambic tetrameter. Right. Like it's boring and dull. And Tennyson gets, have you, have you ever tried to write, read the Idols of the King or anything like that? It does go on, doesn't it? It gets boring. Yeah. And like, I'd rather just read Lamort D'Arthur by Mallory. Or oh, something. absolutely. I'd rather read that. And it's just because the poetry gets dull at a time. It's like, it's like too much salt. Mm-hmm. All you get is sugar. All you get is salt. That's all you get. And it's like just one note. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
Right. So Elizabeth Bishop, what's interesting about her is she 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 doesn't get very inventive with her sounds. She is very a lot of IMs here. Right. It's very straightforward in its uh, meter. And I think actually a lot of the good a lot of good poets are very straightforward in their meter. You have that one extreme of too sing songy. Right. And then all the the things they try to say they're just like platitudes. Right. Then on the opposite extreme, you have things that are way too abstract. They think that meter is like a thing of the past and they don't have to use it anymore. And they're going to build meter in other ways and get creative that way, which that's just the avant-garde. And if you're really, really, really into poetry and the craft of it, some of it can be interesting just to see what they're doing. But otherwise, they're not really writing poetry because poetry has this internal rhythm and music that comes from the meter. Right. And that's part of what poetry is, is this marriage of the sound of the poem with the image of the poem, the thing the poem's trying to say. Right. And so with Yeats, it was these rhymes and rhythms and things that were inside the poem with the imagery of the swans in autumn and twilight. And so that's always at stake with the poem. A good poet's always balancing those things. It's really difficult to balance all these things. Right. That's why one word, just changing one little word can change everything. Oh, can I just interject a thought that I've had as you've been talking, which is I, I really think, to my taste at least, not sure, sure if I'm prepared to say this is an objective truth, but I think I, I'm close. I think good art, the really great art, good art, <laughs> how to say this, good art reveals itself, great art disguises itself. In other words, if you can catch the artist being an artist, the artist has failed. And what I mean by that is some of these poems that are just obviously, it's like, oh, that's a poem. That sounds like a poem. But you read Bishop, the poem that we just read, and it's doing some very poemy stuff. But if I just read it to you and you you weren't thinking about it, you could almost be forgiven for thinking. I don't think you'd actually think I was reading an essay, but it's kind of humble, right? Like it doesn't, it's not always calling attention to how sophisticated it is in its construction. Yeah. Even though its construction is quite sophisticated, actually, it's not, it doesn't rub that in your face. It lets it just kind of wash over you. Yeah. She's actually very, she's good at hiding this. Right. Because the, probably a good poem to compare this to is the one that does sound much more like a poem, which is, do not go gentle into that good night. Mm -hmm. People know this poem, do not go gentle into that good night, Mm -hmm. rage, rage against the dying of the light. These are both the same kind of poem. Do not go gentle into that good night kind of has that rhetorical flourish to it, where it sounds like a poem. And I'm not saying that rhetorical flourish or or poetry-ishness is always bad. No, but here, so do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the night. The wise men at their end no dark is right, because the words had forked no lightning. They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Mm. And so you can hear in this poem what's happening. Right. These lines that keep getting repeated. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. With Bishop's poem, it's not so obvious, right? Right. So if we go back there, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. 
So there we go. We have the repetition of the line again. Mm-hmm. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. So the repetition of disaster there. And so she has the same interwoven lines. This is called a villanelle. Mm-hmm. It's where the first line and the last line of the first stanza get built into the last of each subsequent stanza until the end, where they get repeated at the end of the last stanza. Right. Back to back. And this is a very tricky little form to write well because the repetitions are so obvious. And Dylan Thomas did it by just being blatant about it. Right. By just kind of almost having it like he's singing this angry song to you. Yes. While Bishop hides it, mm-hmm. right? There's artifice going on here. It's like the Yeats poem. When you read the Yeats poem, it's hard to hear the rhymes until they get pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. Here, it's kind of, once you see it, it's hard to unsee. Right. It's like her other little poem, the Sestina, which is once you see what's happening, it's really hard to see, unsee what's happening. Right. But until then, it's not overly obvious, but it does help add to this poem because what this, what a villanelle does is it works by building towards something. So if you notice both of these poems, Dylan Thomas's builds towards his father at the end. Right. And he's talking about men who have to face death, good men, bad men, violent men, how they face death. And then he says, and you, dad, there, you're dying. He's saying, be like, you know, do the same. Right. And so that's how it builds up and it adds this weight to it. Here, she's talking about the art of losing. He's like, okay, so the art of losing isn't hard to master. Lose something, lose keys, right? Then lose farther, lose faster, lose names, places. Say, I lost my mother's watch once, right? I lost houses. And then she gets into the kind of this fantasy of cities, rivers, continents. You're like, what's going on here? And then it has that sort of, that gut-wrenching turn at the end where she says, you know, she's lost her husband. Mm-hmm. This all has just been to, all this villanelle, these repetitions, these lines, they've been like practice to just try and get her to be able to say goodbye mm-hmm. and to try and convince herself that it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. That's the poem. Write it. <laughs> <laughs> Write it. <laughs> And so this poem works through, that uses those repetitions of lines to help you feel the weight of her loss at the end. Mm -hmm. That's what the whole point of this poem is, is to help you feel the weight of that loss and what it's like to have lost this thing. And so the irony, and it's not like hipster, I won't say hipster. Right. Jake's not here. Say it all you want. It's not like hipster. It's not like Jake's favorite term hipster. Yes. And their ironies. Mm -hmm. Those hipster ironies, as Jake always calls them. No, but it is an ironic poem in its way. But it's ironic in the good sense. Yes, yes. And the sense that she starts off and you think, okay, well, this might be funny. This might be a funny poem. Right. right. And almost has a, what's that essayist that everybody loves from New Yorker today? E.B. White? No. Oh, uh, David Sedaris. Almost has a David Sedaris quality. At the, like, ah, I lost my keys, right? I, 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 how did I keep losing my keys? It's, yeah, it's then, just kind of kvetching. And... Yeah. And then, but then by the end, it's more serious. Right. So... And this is just personal preference. I like poems that kind of use the naturalness of language, but still make it into poetry. I do too. I think John Donne kind of was good at that as well. Yeah. If you read some of his holy sonnets, I mean, Shakespeare is wonderful, but there's a naturalness to Donne's language that is not there in Shakespeare because mm-hmm. Shakespeare is, it's, it reads like Shakespeare. I think that's really the point to make with this poem though, is this is just a good one to show how repetitions of lines mm-hmm. in traditional forms, this is a villanelle. Right an Italian form that was as as old as, not older than Dante. She's able to use it still today with modern language, and it still has the art of losing isn't hard to master. That's perfect iams right there. Right. Then practice losing further, losing faster. Those are still perfect iams. Mm-hmm. But the way you read it, then practice losing further, losing faster. Right. It doesn't sound like iams really, but it is. It's right. still perfect iamic poetry mm-hmm. going on here. It's just, I, I find Elizabeth Bishop has this ability to use these very simple phrases because there's nothing 
One, one other thing about Elizabeth Bishop, and this is just a statement about her poems, is she's able to use what sounds like pretty common speech and turn it into poetry. I really admire that. I lost my mother's watch. That's Those are iams right there. I lost my mother's watch. But it doesn't sound like a high and poetic phrase. It's just, it's kind of, kind of some magic going on with the way that she can do this. And I'm not saying every poet has to write this way. I still admire poets that still have sort of the musical quality. Yeats, I right. love Yeats. He, can, he still can have this sort of quality too. He's an early instance of this. And I know that somebody out there is probably going to come and say, well, you just don't like the romantics because you just prize the poets who are writing more in your vernacular. And then I say, okay, yeah. I think that's to some extent true for me at least i enjoy being talked to in my own idioms yeah just like they would too and i think that's just an aspect of poetry call it a bias but it's a one worth acknowledging i think but i think poetry deals with the language of its time Mm -hmm. and tries to make that into poetry yeah there's nothing dumber than someone trying to write in the idioms of another time it's not that you can't do it but but it's but then like i remember in homeschool circles you would have these kids that would like write in Elizabethan prose yeah, and try to make everybody think that they were brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's probably, it's very similar to what C.S. Lewis said about, it's much more difficult to write simply than it is to write like an academic. Absolutely. Just to paraphrase what he said, that's not actually his, what he said, but it's much more difficult, I think, to write a poem like Elizabeth Bishop because the simplicity is very deceptive. Yeah. You, I, without working very, very hard at it, we would not be able to write something like this. It would, take, it would be much easier to write a pastiche, a passable pastiche of Elizabethan yeah. style. This would this. take us months of polishing and working. And I think this represents months of polishing and working on her end. Oh, I'm sure. And, and so, the, the, the music of a classic, you know, you could imagine Ian McKellen. I lost my mother's watch and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. It's all there. Yeah. But she just doesn't draw attention to it. It's I call it Cormac McCarthy syndrome. It's yeah. young boys generally read some Cormac McCarthy and then they think I'm going to adopt this grandiose archaic style and everyone's going to think I'm really cool and it's like Cormac McCarthy can kind of get away with that but actually most people should try and write good modern English. I think it's also a big temptation for homeschool classical people Mm -hmm. because they're brought up thinking that the only good stuff is the stuff that's really old and so therefore they can't write anything that sounds modern right right because why would they want to be modern? But one of my favorite things to point out to students when you read Shakespeare is that actually peasants up to the royalty, they all got a kick out of his place. Right. It's because he was speaking the parlance of the time. And in many ways, he was being innovative and making up words and he's much more s- doing things much more similar to like what you see with rap. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which is, I mean, I, mean, I know that's going to scandalize somebody, but mm-hmm. it's true. <laughs> He was much more like a Kendrick Lamar or a um, Kid Cudi. Yeah, he just was. It's absolutely true. Well, let's move on to our third poem. Sure, yeah. Let's end with digging. Let me see if I can redeem myself in the way that I write it, read it, <laughs> read this. <laughs> write it. <laughs> okay. Maybe I screwed <laughs> I was taking some interpretive latitude there. <laughs> Is giving her a little bit of a sarcastic, yeah. bitter edge, even as she discussed this painful thing. Yeah. And and making her a flamboyantly gay uh, <laughs> 30 year old male. <laughs> All right. I suck. I admit it, folks. <clears throat> oh, man. I almost feel like you need an Irish accent to really do this one justice. Between my finger and my thumb. The squat pen rests snug as a gun. 
All right, take it away. All right. Between my finger and my thumb. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll do it right. <clears throat> Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, souping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head, but I have no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. There we go. This poem is probably the most modern thing that we've read. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some rhymes in it, but rhyme is not an inherent part of this poem. Right. So the most e- the most obvious is under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. Mm-hmm. My father digging. I looked at Again, this is just like the Yeats poem, though the rhyme here intentionally calls attention to this. Next part, it's my father, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the first turn of this poem. But... This is a very image-driven poem. It's this guy sitting, and he sees his father outside digging, and then he thinks about his grandfather who dug before him and how they have this connection of digging. And so then he feels this sort of isolation, pretty similar to what Yeats felt with the swans. But instead of having the sadness, he finds a way forward. He's got his pen, and he'll Mm. dig with it. And guess what? The poem you just read was him digging. Write it! So yeah, he wrote it. Uh, (laughs) He did it. And so that's kind of the fun of this poem. You get to the end and it's this circular thing. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about his father and his grandfather, but his act of writing and thinking about his father and grandfather was his being his father and grandfather. So it's his winning. It's his way of connecting to them through this nostalgic looking admiration of them. And obviously it's not completely being on equals with him. I, when I read this poem, I always get a sense of sadness that he, in his chosen vocation, can't quite be the men they were. Right. I do think there's a loss to this poem, which I like a lot. Mm-hmm. I felt that same thing. This poem speaks to me directly because my dad is a manly, hardworking man. And I'm not saying I'm not a hardworking man. You're a hardworking man. But he's got, he the life that he was dealt and given meant that he had to work in a way that I never have had to. And his grandfather before him, his father, they had to work in ways that I don't have to. And it's part of modernity. It's part of being a modern Gen X. What generation are we? I don't know. We're not quite millennials. But whatever it is, that means that a lot of the jobs we have nowadays means that we don't go out and get our hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Right? And so how does he feel this connection? Well, he feels it by showing his admiration for them, by putting them into a poem, by digging, by working with. And so going back to kind of bring this podcast full circle mm. with Adam's curse, he says, you know, it's better to go down upon your marrow bones and scrub, scrub a p- kitchen pavement or break stones like a pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all of these and yet be thought an idler. Mm. And so <clears throat> what his point is, is that it's hard to write poems like this. And yet people think you're an idler if all you are is a poet, right? And yet it's hard work. 
in the Yeats poem. People don't go hating on Yeats here because the poem is more complicated than that. And there's kind of an ironic turn at the end where the poem is kind of making fun of the poet for giving so much credence to his craft, taking it so seriously, yeah. right? But there's some truth to it. And I think the truth is that, A, like we've been stressing with this poem, the right words, the right rhythms, the right lines and groupings of lines really matter in a poem and they're hard work to put together. And so if you look at this poem, the point I want to make is that this is very, this is the closest to free verse we've seen, but there's, it's still not complete free verse. It's almost very blank verse-ish in the sense of it has a lot of, uh, till his straining rump among the, till his straining rump among the flower beds. It's 11 syllables, but it's still all, it's like within that, uh, it's all shaking and moving around 10 syllables. Mm -hmm. It's very blank verse, which is Shakespearean. But it's very loose with its rhythms. And the way that he gets his rhythm within the poem is through the sounds of the words. Till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low. And there's a reason that Haney is so sympathetic to Beowulf and the Beowulf poet. Because a lot of his poetry comes through imagery, but it also comes through the sound of words in relation to one another. So the connection there is flower beds bends low. It's that the L in the flower, the B in flower beds with the bends in the L in low. Hear that? Flower beds bends low. Mm -hmm. Comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills. You can hear these echoes of the sounds within the words. And so he's using, instead of using rhyme, he's using the sound of words playing off of each other to help and give it a music. And that's a way, that's the way that Shane, uh, Haney writes a lot of his poems. And people will be like, well, that's not really what the poetry you've been talking about. Well, but no, but it is, it is the Anglo-Saxon roots of our poetry. Yeah. Poetry used to not be based on just rhyme and rhythm. It used to not be based on rhyme at all. It used to be based on the sound of words, alliteration. Mm. And if you go back to Cool, like the, the, the Yeats poem, if you go to the Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bishop poem, you would be able to find these internal echoes and rhythms and the way that a poet will shift sounds in a poem. They'll be using B sounds and suddenly they'll be using C sounds or they'll be using... And it's really fascinating to watch a poet do that because it helps bring that music to the poem. Just the sound of words, these B's and L's and stuff echoing off of one another. You can see it directly in certain places, like what was the one best example I saw? Oh yeah, the cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat. Here are the S's and P's there. Mm -hmm. And then he says, the curt cuts of an edge. The curt cuts right there. I mean, that's just direct alliteration, right? And so, anyways, I, this poem's really helpful. One, to show the way that an image can build meaning, but also then a way... A poet can use the internal sounds of words to help write poetry. Does it make sense? Absolutely. And so, and now people can take that lesson that you see here and go apply it to Yeats, go apply it to Bishop and see that of all, with all the other things they're doing, the rhymes and the rhythms, they also have these internal rhythms to the words and the way that the words relate to one another. And that's what I was saying at the beginning is the way the words relate to one another matter. If you change smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat. If you change, even though there's no rhyme that's dependent on any of those words, if you change any of those words, you begin to lose that sibilant quality. The squelch, slap, soggy peat. Mm -hmm. you, use the, you lose the peas, you lose all this, and not suddenly you have a different poem. Because just as much as the image he's building matters, the sound of it matters too. And then once you start to change those words, the image also starts to change, and then the meaning of the poem starts to change. And so that's why poets are always shifting things, and it's really difficult. And so that's why whenever I do teach poetry, I always start with Adam's Curse, that line, you know, a line may take us hours, perhaps. And yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, 
stitchings and unstitchings have been not, because I think that's a really helpful way to see just how difficult the craft of poetry is, but also then how just like any other craft it is. I mean, it's like a wife wanting to prepare a good meal, right? You got to find the balance of flavors and stuff. It's like any other art. Someone's not going to build a house if one of the studs is a couple inches off. So it just takes precision and sanding and knowing your craft and knowing how everything fits together to build this wonderful thing. And I'll tell you what stud wasn't off. Brandon Chastine in giving us all this wonderful information on poetry. Thank you, Nathan. That's great. <laughs> you know what my favorite line in that James Heaney poem? This is, will contribute nothing to the discussion, what? but I really like the those repeated vowel sounds like snug as a gun and yeah. rump among. Yeah. And they're almost hard to say, but they just, I don't know. I well, don't know why that right, speaks yeah, to me. It but, goes right with what I was saying. There. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just I, that's how he does his poetry. Mm. He loves the sound of words. Booking was uh, written and produced. Uh, we'll, we'll say Brandon wrote it today because. He, he had so much good information. We'll give him that honor. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking, sign up, support us. And if you want a donor shout out, you pay 10 bucks. But now Elvis, we've been on vacation. You guys see how hard it's been for us to even put together a regular booking episode. But Elvis, Elfish Elvis reading. What is it that it's Jake's gonna, supposed to do? Jake is going to read the Chronicles of Narnia, translated into Tolkien Elvish, dressed as an elf, dressed as Elvis. Yeah, it's coming, folks. <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> it's like a shame I'm excited. <laughs> a poem right I there. I think we may be the only excited people, <laughs> but we are excited. No, we are very excited, and we are going to get that done as soon as possible for you, the listener. We are also still working on those t-shirts. They're going to happen. They will happen. They will happen. I'm sorry, folks. Thank you for supporting us just the same. And we'll see you next week for Narnia, Brandon. Yeah. C.S. Lewis.